Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's guest is Jamie Diamond, the chairman and CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase. Now, he took this job back in 2006, and goodness gracious, it has not been easy. He faced the global financial crisis in 08, the pandemic, and all the aftermath. I mean, at one point in this conversation, I have to just ask him if it's possible to have fun in business anymore. But I love the no-nonsense way Jamie approaches leadership in these tough moments. Because he isn't surprised by problems. He's prepared for them. As he puts it, you don't have a war and then decide to have an army. You better have the army first. I mean, as leaders, we got to be real and say the problems are going to come up. They just are. They might be big or they might be small, short-term or long-term. But one thing's for sure, they're going to be there and we got to be prepared. There's just so much we can learn from Jamie. So we always have a plan to deal with problems. So buckle up. Here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Jamie Diamond. Everyone has their own style and their their own way of leading. And today's guest, my very good friend, Jamie Diamond, the chairman and CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, is a leader who leads by being absolutely real in everything he does. Jamie, I, I know you got a million irons in the fire right now, so I, I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation with me. I'm thrilled to be here with you, David. <laughs> you know, it's hard to believe, but it, it's actually the anniversary of the financial crisis of 2008, 12 years ago. And I was on the J.P. Morgan Chase board at the time, and, and I basically watched you and J.P. Morgan Chase save the U.S. economy and the financial system. Could you remind us of the events and, and, and what you specifically learned from the crisis yourself? Yeah. So, Brian, you know, you and I have been together a long time, going way back uh, for almost 25 years now. And um, we, we've learned a lot together. I always learned a lot watching you and our buddy Andy Pearson, too, back then. So, you know, the crisis started, it was actually started much earlier than people think. Like in this summer of 2007, the quant fund started to have problems. And then Bear Stearns was the one that people remembered, which we bought in March of 08, which kind of marked as the part of the beginning of real bad times. And before Lehman, you had insurance companies, you had Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, you had a lot of savings and loans, you had a lot of mortgage brokers, you know, you had this terrible mortgage market was unveiling how bad it was. And then you had Lehman. And Lehman was obviously kind of the, the worst part. And even after Lehman, if you go to March of 2009, that's when the market hit the bottom. Right. So it just this thing unfolded like a, just a multiple train wrecks that took place over the course of a year. And, and of course, we don't, a lot of Americans will remember, you had major banks all over Europe failing. So this was cascading a global problem. And what do you learn? You know, the first thing you learn is that you, you don't like have a war and then decide you're going to have an army. You better have the army first so that in some ways we didn't change a lot. So you may remember some of our risk committee meetings. And, you know, we went from having them once a week, talking about these issues, to have them every single day, you know, and three or four times a day. In fact, you may remember I took you guys to one of the risk meetings. I said, I can't have the board, but you come happy. And we went through clients. We went through countries. We went through exposure. We went through collateral. We went through margin calls. We went through clients who were calling for help. And so, but, but we were kind of prepared on that basis. 
The other thing in the financial world, crises happen, and they they happen in ways you don't necessarily always understand. Like look at the one today, you know, which in many ways is worse because the health crises with a major recession with you know somewhat of a global financial crisis attached to it, and so uh, but the best preparation have a great company, have good margins, respond quickly, take care of your customers, know that problems happen, don't be over leveraged, don't say I never expect something to get bad. It can always get bad. You know, I remember you making the fortress balance sheet your big rallying cry well before this happened. Where did you learn that as a leader? Where did that become such a key thing to you? Because you also went after that at Bank One with a lot of Egypt when you became CEO yeah. there. Yeah, and before, before you knew me, you know, I was I was the president chief of you know, Travelers for many years and stuff like that. And that, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm a nerd. I studied a lot. My dad was a stockbroker. My grandfather was a stockbroker. These crises are not new. And so I used to give this little presentation, this is before the growth of financial crisis, but all the crises happen all the time, and they're usually unsuspected. Too much leverage, often around commercial or consumer real estate, often around new financial products, and that, that the preparation is to run a really good company. And you know, I remember when you had your problems at Young Brand with genetically modified stuff or that the, the people who delivered the food to your stores. Right. The distribution from. company, yeah. Right. yeah and, but, but every one of those were able to overcome. Right. Management, focused. You had bad stores and you kind of put them in the doctor outfit, you picked them up and resold them. And, <laughs> but you just, you just want to deal with these things, the ordinary course, and recover from them. And, and if you do it, you're doing a great job for your customers, your employees, your communities, because you're strong. Yeah. And the fourth and the other thing about the fourth balance sheet is I'm, I believe in conservative accounting. Literally, is concerned. I, you know, I don't like contra accounts. I think that on balance sheet, off balance sheet makes absolutely no difference. I believe, and, and fortress balance sheet includes fortress controls, fortress risk. You know, having good margins. You know, understanding all your exposures, and of course, you know, your exposures in one business are very different than mine. You know, but you should understand how bad can that get so you can handle it. You know, looking back, JB, what are, what are you most proud of of your team and during that time? Just that they come together. That, that even when you're not there, they're in the room. And I remember instead of being formal, like risk committee might have had 10 members, and it was meeting, you know, literally 5 a.m. for the Asians, 10 p.m. at night for the Asians, but 12 and 1, 5. And the people just, they, they just, just bring who you got to bring. Yeah. So you got a client with the problem, bring the person who's the expert in the client, the expert in the product. And, and people are communicating nonstop all through the night sometimes. Keep people briefed, you know, wake up, Jamie, don't wake them up. Let's, let's, let's uh, respond in constant contact with governments around the world. And, and uh, that just, you know, just teamwork is a, those who have never played a team don't fully understand how good teamwork feels. I remember going to those risk committee meetings with you and, and watching you just take on event after event after event. And you were like the orchestra conductor. Yeah. But you 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 really leaned hard on the team and helped them yeah. understand how accountable they had to had to be. How'd you muster up just the fortitude to go in every day and take on because you weren't doing this one day a week, you were doing this 24-7 every single day. We did it every day for the better part of a year or something like that. And you know, I don't know. I'm David, I'm just not completely normal. Most of my <laughs> friends and family say. Uh, but it's also it's like it's like when you're you play sports, man. You just you want to win that game. You're gonna do what it takes, you know, within the rules, of course. And and you just and you know you got to do it. And every day you wake up, you know, you just roll up your sleeves, and it's and you just want to be proud of the team. And plus, they're relying on me, so they they motivate me because 
I know they were up all night just to tell me one little thing sometimes. And the motivation you get from your own people is extraordinary. You taught me about the recognition thing and, and the depth of what it means because behind recognition, you're acknowledging that they did it, not you. You're acknowledging that you can't do it all. There's a humility beneath that. You're acknowledging you learn from them. It isn't just that you're patting them in the back, but you're, you're basically showing general Jim Mattis, when he talks about leadership, he talks about humility. Right. That you know, you know you don't know. You know the other person's probably in the firing line and you're not. Your job is to be the coach or, the, like you said, the orchestra constructor, uh, not necessarily the quarterback. Right. Right. You, you may not even be playing the game. You're just making sure the team's playing the game right. <laughs> and now, Jamie, here we are. We have COVID-19. You know, how are you navigating J.P. Morgan Chase through these crazy times? And, and how much do you think just the financial crisis that you went through in 2008, you know, really has helped prepare you for this? Yeah. So we started a COVID-19 war room uh, like maybe a month before they actually started shutting down because we were really worried about it. So a company like ours prepares for, you did too, for disaster recovery. We kind of had pandemic playbooks, but we didn't have a global pandemic and global economic shutdown playbook. But the team did the exact same thing. They started meeting every day. What can we do from home? What can we do from here? How can you move it? Do you need those seats? I need those seats. How many branches are going to keep open? How are we going to keep moving the money around the world? And the whole world closed down. So we had you know, 65,000 people put out of work in India and the Philippines, you know, who were doing work for us. And so, but the same thing, the team started meeting all the time. My management committee still meets every day at 10 o'clock. Any issues on the table, bring up whatever you got to bring up. Some of the meetings are short, some of them are long, some we debate the issue. Some, uh, I say it's a chicken or steak. It doesn't really matter if you do, just do one and move on. And, uh, uh, so it's, but the lessons are the same. And I, I would say about half the people are here for that. Yeah. Not all of them. So I think a lot of younger people learn how you do crisis management. One right. of the beautiful things also is you, you know, you know, we all complain about bureaucracy or slowness or that all goes away. Yeah. I mean, necessity is the mother of invention. You just learn to do stuff a lot faster and with less, you know, getting less permission up the line. Yeah, I remember just recently, you know, a couple of years ago, everybody saying, you know, all these young finance people, business people come up, they don't really know what it's like to operate in a tough environment. We'd had such a, a run after 2009. Well, we're learning now, right? <laughs> yeah. it's, not, it's, it's worse than that, David, because we have unbelievably good people. Yeah. But a lot of people who get these jobs, getting jobs at an already really well-run company, you learn a lot more at a turnaround. So you learned a lot more running young brands when it was new. Taco Bell was underperforming. Pizza Hut was underperforming. You know, you're having problems left and right. You own too many stores. Profit margins are too low. You had to renegotiate all your supply. You learn more doing that than when you have a successor takes over the job that's already well run. And I always worry about that. Like, okay, well, have you really been in the boxing ring? You may be the heavyweight champion of the world, but you didn't have to fight 10 people to get there. <laughs> yeah, you just kind of inherited it. And so a lot of these folks, they're learning this way. They've never had a tough time. Right. They've never had a, uh, they've never lost money. They've never made a bad loan. They've never, yeah. you know, and those things hurt, you know, when you do yeah. them. And so. I, I know you don't let necessarily see yourself as a fortune teller. And, and, and I think I know exactly what your answer is going to be, but, but I'm going to ask you this anyway, what's your gut 
tell you that our economy is going to be like in the next few years? Yeah. So I'll tell you, I will answer the question before I do that more for, you know, how we think about it a little bit. I think the people who listen to podcasts, you really always should be thinking about, I always say the bookends, almost like worst case, best case, or something approximating that. Because you got to prepare for both when you're running a company. Since you don't know the future, so you may want to predict that you can try, but you should never say, this is what I think, and I'm betting my company in that. And we have to be prepared for a long, extended, no vaccine, 12% unemployment for, you know, for multiple years. And how do I continue to serve my client, do a good job, take care of my employees under that environment, which is what I plan for and worry about. And then, of course, there's the good environment that we come out of this thing. So the, but the big picture, America is amazingly resilient. We will get out of it. The real question is, is it, you know, is it a year, a year, 12 months worse before we start getting much better? Or is it three years? But it's not never. And so I think people kind of overreact to uh, some of these things. And that, uh, but if I if I had a guess, if we're going to slog through until next June, call it, you know, we're now at 10 and a half for 11% unemployment. I'm not sure it's going to get a lot better for a whole bunch of different reasons. It could actually get a little bit worse in the short run. You know, we don't know how the health crisis is going to unveil. It's starting to look a little better. Uh, and then, then you'll start to see improvement. And, of course, put the geopolitical complexity in there, the election, the relationship with China, all those things. The emerging markets are going to have a tough time. They're all going to affect America. And so uh, you know, I hope it's better than that. And I think the government did a lot of really brave, quick stuff to make it better than that. I hope they're going to do another round intelligently. Uh, but it's going to be a tough road still. Jamie, I've, I've seen you run your businesses and, and you have a great gut instinct and you're also very analytical and, and, and you go through the process of looking at the facts. But when you when you look at your decision making process, you know, do you think you're more analytic led or gut led? First of all, I'm a nerd. I study and read everything. We work the numbers, the models, the facts. I look at history. I do all of that. And in some ways, it's hard to separate that from your gut because that actually leads to the gut. Like if you analyze what you call gut and people analyze it, it's based upon pattern recognition, things you've learned, mistakes you've made, and that leads to the gut. And so, uh, but it's really, it's really a great question because if you ask me, how many times do I guess at a decision? Very rarely. I always say sometimes the good answer is a way to be found. And the way to be found when you're working. You work with the right people in the room over and over you know, some you can do quick, some take a little bit longer. You should take more time on, you know, what Jeff Bezos calls the one door. You know, when you're going through one door and you can't go back, I'd be a little more. And that's people decisions, certain strategic decisions. A lot of them you can go back. You can test and learn. It doesn't work. You try something else. And so some of you make quicker let people make their own gut. And the other thing is, as you know, you, you, gotta, you can't make all the decisions yourself. Even if I could, I shouldn't. You know, I got to let other people do it and let them learn how to get be in that boxing ring and, Stuff like that. So, uh, so I'd say, yeah. I'd say, in some ways, it's more analytic than people think. Yeah, I've offered this to you, and you've turned me down. I wanted to be your campaign manager. I wanted you to run for president <laughs> of the United States, but you know, it doesn't seem to be in your future, at least for the moment. But if you were president, if you mm -hmm. were president, what kind of leadership would you try to bring to this country? First of all, I think you should always have great people around you. You know, expertise is important. You know, you and I know that. You can't do anything intelligent by yourself. And you really need to have with domestic or foreign policy, something like that. I think, 
I think it's very important we have growth strategies in America, whether you're Democrat or Republican, grow the economy. And so you have regulations, taxations, capital, all these really kind. And then, of course, you can tax wealthier people. But I always tell people, if you're growing at 3%, there's a lot more to go around for everybody. And then you can easily, more easily pay for social safety nets, et cetera. I think we've become really bad at public policy. Infrastructure is not good. You know, we don't have what I would call smart regulation, always more or less. Uh, our, our healthcare system is too many people uninsured. Well, we have some of the best in the world, which you and I are beneficiaries of. We also have 40 million uninsured, and we, we spend twice as much as the other countries, and we don't have twice the outcomes. So there are all these things. We've just done a bad job. We don't teach nutrition in high schools. We don't have sports teams in the inner cities. Education in the cities are leaving generations of kids behind. And we should fix those things. Those are not Democrat or Republicans. And then foreign policy, I think a strong America economically is critical for the military. It's critical for American foreign policy. And we should work very closely with the allies in Europe and Japan to form proper trading uh, structures, military structures, defense structures together. You have to compromise a little bit. I think there are a lot of flaws with the ones that were in place, but they are better. And then not, not against China, but, you know, have China join what we think is the right trading system. And, you know, you know, there may be a little decoupling from that, so be it. Right now, we've got so much fighting going on between everybody. I'm not sure it's great for the international system. Yeah, you know, I'd love to hear, Jamie, how, how as a leader, you'd go about addressing the income gap we have in America. Is there an answer to this? Yeah, I mean, there's, I think there are multiple answers. And I think it's real. And, of course, the racial gap is real. And it's been there for 150 years. So it isn't like new. You know, and, and damn it, we haven't done a good job. You know, we started with the 40 acres of mule for the black community. We never finished it. That was meant to give opportunity. So, so a model of education and the help that families need in the inner cities to get these kids good paying jobs. It's been done. It's been done around the world. There are apprenticeship programs, internship programs. You need business to be more involved. That's one. Affordable housing would be another. But I will also be, there's a thing called the earned income tax credit. So if you're making $14,000 a year as a single mother with two children, the government gives you 6000 And, you know, supposedly bring up to more of a living wage. I would, I would double that. And both Democrats and Republicans like it. So jobs bring dignity, get people in the workforce. People who enter the workforce tend to stay, and they tend to start to move up the ladder. So if you have a $22,000 a year job, you know, in 10 years, it could be 55000 or 75000 So I would, I would have jobs pay more, even if we had a negative income tax or something. I think it'd be better for growth, better for society. You have better social outcomes. Change the tax system a little bit. I would have a very competitive business tax system. I think it's a mistake to hurt business taxation, et cetera. And then, you know, then if you have to tax people who are at the wealthy end, that does not slow down growth. Hurting businesses, that slows down growth. And so I would have a growth strategy around regulation, taxation, et cetera, uh, and you'll have higher growth. America, and I really do believe this, should have been growing at 3% a year the last 10 or 12 years, not two. That 1% difference is a huge amount of GDP. I think it would have been $4 trillion higher. That means tax collection would have been another trillion and a half dollars higher. Okay, the GDP per household would have been far bigger. And that, that, that pays for more. You know, you pay, right. And by our safety net needs to be fixed too because it has so many flaws in it and actually hurts uh, some of the lower income people. So my biggest complaint would be good policy will get us there. Anger will not. 
and business has to be involved. Government can't do it alone. And not that government is bad. Government, it just, it just isn't going to move that quick. Right. They don't have AI. They don't have our technology. You know, 80% of the jobs come out of business. So we should just acknowledge that business should work with civic society. Think of unions, hospitals, schools, et cetera, and with government. And working together, we can fix this thing. Hating each other is just really hard to do. The other big issue, and you brought it up, is healthcare. And I know you don't necessarily have the answer on on how to solve this, but I think what would be interesting to, is, is for you to share, if I was the president of the United States and, and I said, hey, Jamie, I want you to solve healthcare for our country, okay? How would you go about doing it? How would you think as a leader? And w- what would you do to get to the right answer? Yeah. So if you were president, I would take the job, by the way, because I, I work for people I respect. And so the first thing is just to define the problem, like literally define the problem. And so we know it's too expensive. We know 40 million people are insured. We know there's no transparency. We don't teach wellness. Obesity has become, you know, General Ordiano told me that 70% of the kids who apply to get in the military can't get in because they either can't read or write or they're obese. And obesity drives heart disease, depression, cancer, stroke. Uh, and so we acknowledge the problem. Get the people who are involved in it to acknowledge the problem. Now, then I, I would form a group of people, not just experts, academic, but practitioners, hospitals, doctors. And then I would come up with solutions for each one of those things. You know, how are we going to do transparency? How are we going to do deductible programs? How are we gonna, like insurance should, if you have a insurance policy, should be nationwide, not by state. We should have had medical malpractice reform. We should be teaching nutrition and exercise in K to 12. Like, you know, we all taught our own kids. They don't teach it in these schools anymore. And then I'd go to you as the president and say, here's what we should do. You have to make the political choices. I, but I wouldn't bastardize, you know, what you should do. What often happens in decision-making is you bastardize the decision before it even gets to the person. So you might say, Jamie, I can't do A, I can't do B, I can't do C, but I get D, E, and F done. Help me get that yeah. done. And I'd say, yes, sir, let's go get them. Let's make yeah. it better than it was before. That just makes too much common sense. <laughs> <You know? laughs> exactly. That's why I can't be in those jobs. <laughs> I don't know about that. But anyway, we just mentioned health. And, you know, I, I have to, because I know everybody would want me to ask this. I want to ask you about your own health. You and I both had cancer a few years ago. And, and then you recently had this heart attack. I know you're, you're listening to you right now. You're back at it. You are the Jamie Diamond. It's always the Jamie Diamond. I know anyway. Uh, but how have these events, these life events, impacted your outlook on, on life and business? Yeah, you're still adjusting to it. The way I, my mind works, I, I kind of delay my reaction to something like that. And for the audience, I had, they call it aortic dissection. Like they replaced parts of my heart. And I easily could have died. I knew that going to the operating room. Uh, and I, I always tell people, I really mean, take care of your mind, your body, your spirit, your soul, your friends and your family. I tell it to our employees, we can't do all that for you. We can help you. Uh, and one lesson for my thing, by the way, I called my doctor right after I felt my heart rate. I mean, this was not like maybe. I knew something was devastatingly wrong. And he not answered my phone call at 5.50 in the morning. And I knocked out of the hospital. And he not got a top heart doctor in there. I wouldn't have made it. And so, you know, I tell him, be prepared. Like if something goes wrong, like what do you do? Who's going to take care of the kids? Who's going to stay home? What hospital you go to? Because it can happen to anyone for, you know, it could be a falling night. It could be a heart attack or a stroke or something like that. So uh, be a little prepared. But it doesn't, it didn't change. I felt good about literally going, I told my wife going in, I, 
I felt good about everything I'd done in life. I didn't feel like regrets or I felt that I'd left my family in good position in a million different ways. And so I wasn't going to go out feeling unhappy about it. Obviously, dying at 64 would make me unhappy. But when I obviously recovering, I like purpose in life. I think it's good to have a purpose in life. And my purpose can't be to play golf or to you know, sniff the flowers and stuff like that. I like to travel, but I love what I do. I work with people and customers and employees and kids in the black community. And I talk to the union people. I talk to the politicians. And I like it. I'm trying to make it a better world. This is my contribution as best as I can to the world. And I want to do that pretty much until the day I die. And one day I'll do something like what you're doing, which is teaching. I'd love to do that too. I'd love to talk to kids in colleges. And I, you know, one of my favorite conversations with other CEOs is, how do you run your joint? How do you run it? <laughs> I still use that trick you gave me since we last met at the board. Yeah. Like, how do you do? Because you learn so much from other people. So having a purpose life makes me feel good. And, you know, when I can't give it my all, I shouldn't have the job. I tell them, this is not a job of kind of retire in place. You give it 100%, and when you can't, you give it to somebody else and uh, you know, help them in the transition period or something, but let them let them go do the job. So uh, the, only, the only thing the sickness has changed a little bit is this thing about my mind is much less like, you know, everyone knows they're going to die. But believe it or not, you really don't know until you've had something like this. Because you faced right up here. So now, I'm sure you're probably the same thing. You don't assume it's going to go on forever. Whereas, <laughs> you know, it can happen. <laughs> you know it can happen. But, you know, when someone says you have cancer, and it's like a punch in the face. And uh, so I, and I use the word, I got this from uh, uh, Julia Baird who wrote a book. Uh, but she used the word deliberate. She had multiple bouts of cancer. And then you just live more deliberately. But in my job, you can't only do things you like. So it's not like, oh, I'm not going to do that. I don't like it. I have to do those things. But you live deliberately. What do you want to do? Why are you doing it? How are you thoughtful? So I did make a bunch of changes, but uh, I try to exercise almost every day. I try to take care of myself and all of that. But purpose is purpose. I mean, work is purpose. Fighting for something is a purpose. You fight for good. There's no question about that. And right now, with our economy, small businesses are in deep, deep trouble. Uh, how are you taking a leading role trying to find the best way to, to keep them up and running? Because yeah. they're the lifeblood of our country. Yeah, so when I was getting out of the hospital, only half functioning, like they'd already done PPP. And I was so impressed. You know, that our government, in two or three weeks, did a program. Now, you can criticize it all you want. But I've seen Secretary Mnuchin since then. I think he's done an extraordinary job on all the Fed programs. And again, you criticize the things I would have done differently. I, you know, there. Of course, you and I can't come up with a program in three weeks that doesn't have flaws. And they probably corrected some of the flaws, which is also a sign of very good management. I got it. I understand. As opposed to denying it, and we think that those that PPP probably kept 30 million people in jobs. Now I can't prove that. You know, we have data that can kind of justify it, but. Uh, we have to keep small businesses alive to get them over the, the hurdle. Some may not make it anyway, by the way, but at least you give them a chance to make it. And, and you know the restaurant business, well, the restaurants are really struggling. And so uh, they, they have the right thing. Now we're, the government's talking about another program, so we're in touch with them about what we think works and what doesn't work at a very kind of a technical level, what forms you have to have, what documents you have to have, and, you know, who relies on whose statements, you know, uh, you know, banks can't go audit everything that someone does. You don't have the ability to do that. So you have to rely on the statement of the small business owner saying, 
I ain't using this money for payroll. I am using this money for rent. But you're going to have to have another round for another bunch. And and the Fed has a bunch of programs out there. So I I think in general, they're doing the right stuff. Good. In general, we need another round. And and we also have to get back to work. This notion that somehow we can not be back at work and that you're not going to have an economy that gets kind of consistently worse. And that will be worse for the health of Americans. Depression, drinking, drugs, crime. We know one thing about the economy, that unemployment is a bad thing for the health of Americans. And, and, uh, and then people lose their skills. The capital stock gets worse. So, you know, there's a, we got to keep pushing this thing until we get out. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, and, and our country has also had the, the crisis that was ignited by the tragic death of, of George Floyd. How are you addressing racial justice and diversity and inclusion at J.P. Morgan Chase? Yeah, you know, again, so that, that's another one. So COVID showed that all the inequities in society, but they were already there. That was true in the Great Recession. It's true in every recession. The poor people suffer more and a lot of the poor minorities. The murder of George Floyd, we've already known about this stuff. And I, my view is we got to double down and fix it. So the BRT, JP Morgan, a lot of companies are doing much more work. And we've started this program called Advancing Black Pellets before the murder of George Floyd about affordable housing, financing small businesses, lending to uh, special types of mortgages, uh, training programs for inner city school kids. And all of us have to just double down and come up with the policies, the rules, the targets that make sense, because this has gone on for too friggin' long. And I'm gratified that the American public recognizes it. And they've totally changed their mind about this. And David, one of the beautiful things, you know, when we all oil each other's throat, at 7 o'clock p.m. every day in New York, if you stick your head outside a window, you're going to hear hundreds of thousands of people clapping and banging pans and yelling and cheering as all in support of the essential workers, the nurses, the doctors, the sanitation workers. That's the spirit we need. What can we do to help America at this point, not just ourselves sometimes? And and so we we have a the BRT is going to run some really interesting stuff about racial equality. And I think that is, now's the time to whatever we've done in the past. A lot of countries have done a lot of good stuff. They acknowledge it's not enough. We got to do more. We got to figure out ways to make it work better, and it'll be better for all society too if we get that done. BRT talking about the business roundtable for our listeners yeah. out there. You know, and and you've really led the charge in trying to get business to be more responsible in in every way. You know, a lot of people say, oh, the BRT has come out with this statement. It's just uh, some fluff. Is this real? Do you think companies are genuinely changing? Yeah. I, I mean, I, first of all, I think some, some had already done it. So the, the notion that these bigger companies weren't good, they already took very good care of the employees. They paid them well. They trained them well. They had health care. They had uh, emotional programs. So people had emotional problems. They, so the notion that they weren't good, that we weren't good communities, that, that's, that wasn't true. But, but what is true is that we, the corporate purpose that had been the business roundtable had said, you know, primacy of shareholder value. And that we were seeing to the board of the business roundtable, the first thing you think about is your customer. And you better take care of that customer, do a good job. And of course, who does that? Your employee. So I don't know any CEO who comes in and says, shareholder value. They say, no, what are your technology? What are your systems? Who are your customers? Who are your employees? And of course, you are a good community citizen. So all the companies believe that. We changed the wording. We could demonstrate all the stuff we already do. And yeah, a lot of companies want to do more. The most complex one, David, is the corporate responsibility one. 
the community responsibility. And that one, I, I'm going to give you two examples. That they're both important. One is harder to understand the other. But if you ran just one store, you're part of the community. You take the ice off the front so the little lady doesn't break her leg. You probably participate in a religious institution locally, the Little League. If you make food, you probably drop off the excess food at a homeless shelter some of the way home. You participate. That's called humanity. Your community is better for it. Your business is better for it. Your, you know, people have smile on their faces. The other one is, I'm going to say, is macro corporate responsibility. And that one is more about what I say is public policy. It's more diffuse, like what do you mean? But I think CEOs should spend more time on getting good public policy, not just fighting for something that's good for them, like this tax break, but infrastructure, immigration, proper regulation, not more or less, smart regulation, healthcare. There are all these things that if we did a better job and we grew faster the country, everyone would be better off. And of course, the rich would be even better off because they own a lot of the country and that's why they shouldn't complain if they tax them a little bit more. And so you know, my view is that that is an important thing. And the CEOs have a lot to offer on those things. How do you get better infrastructure? And, you know, you've walked the halls of Congress. They need they need help. And not help because they're helpless. Help because they don't have the experts in all these fields. They, a lot of them want to do the right thing. But, but they say, what do you need to do to do this? How come you can't finance this? How would you set up? You know, how, how can we make these infrastructure things user pay? All different industries have ways we can help uh, help the government do a better job. Jamie, we've just gone through a lot of big time weighty weighty issues, and uh, do you think it's possible to have fun in business anymore? Yeah, I you know <laughs> listen, David. The, the our job, my job, is like a lot of those parts that I really don't like. Sometimes it's a bigger part of my job, so it's a smaller part of my job. But generally, I come in, I'm happy. I'm exhausted by Friday, you know, but when I come in on Monday, I'm happy to go back to work and I enjoy dealing with our people and our clients. I miss travel. Like you, I traveled the world. I just did a yeah. town hall with our, our folks from India and the Philippines today. But, but all I can say to them is, I'm sorry I can't be there in person. I like to <laughs> shake your hands. I can give awards out. I like to take pictures and have a nice dinner with, you know, the management team and learn what's going on in their country and their families and and so, yeah, it, for the most part, it's fun. But all the jobs yeah. compose a part that's yeah. not. And, you know, and I, and as much as people think CEOs, you know, my wife says, oh, you're the CEO, man. You're always treated well. You get all the accolades. Sometimes I say, yeah, well, spend a week with me and see what it's <laughs> like sometimes. Those parts of the job that aren't that. I think one of the things we both have always loved is, you know, when the times are tougher, if there's something sick about you as a leader because you you actually enjoy getting in there, it's kind of like yeah. this is when you earn your money, you know? Exactly. But you feel responsible. Yeah, absolutely. So when I, go, when I go around the world and I look at the folks, you know, that we've hired and the kids, I it makes me feel so responsible. I want to do my job even better so that I don't let them down. <laughs> Jamie, this has been so much fun catching up with you. And I want to have a little bit more before we take off here. I want to do a lightning round of Q&A. Okay? okay. All right. What three words best describe you? Uh, deliberate, authentic, uh, hard. I think I, I think I have a good heart. Uh, what's your biggest pet peeve? Uh, bureaucracy, politics. If you could be one person in a world for a day, besides you and me, okay, yeah. who who would it be? Probably Abe Lincoln. How come? I think the guy was such an extraordinary human being. Uh, it saved our country. And if you read everything he wrote or said, his deliberate thought, 
is how he treated people. I think he might have been the first president who had a black man to lunch. You know, and even early in his political career, he talked about how they're, e they're equal people. They should be treated equally. There was something about the way he thought and could see through the most complex issues in the world. You know, charity to all. Uh, the Gettysburg Address is probably the most beautiful short documents that explains in a couple of paragraphs what the democracy is all about. I mean, it's really, truly uh, astounding. Yeah. What's something about you that few people would know? I, I spent a lot of time with my family. I mean, I, I have a little bit of a binary life, family and work. I don't do, you don't see me in black ties and you, know, you probably asked me some and I, you got me to go to the Kentucky Derby once. <laughs> we had fun. Do you have any hidden talents, Jamie? Well, I love music and sports and stuff. I can't play some of that stuff anymore, but uh, I love to read history, and but I wouldn't say hidden talents. You know, I got to ask you this. I mean, here you are, a leader, that is probably one of the most admired, most renowned leaders in, in the world. What skills are you working on? How are you trying to raise your own game? Yeah, I read a tremendous amount, and I'm always learning from other people. Learn, learn, learn. Like, I, uh, David, I told you that years ago, I mean, I was on your board, and with Andy, I learned a lot about how, because like, you, you only do things yourself. And I saw how Cindy Wilde did them, and I saw you guys did them. So I, I, mean, I was just sucking it up. System, the, the diligence of and analytics, the importance of recognition, the you know uh, the, the importance of get on the road, you know get on the road, go visit the stores, go visit you know and you just so I was always sucking up from other people, learning, 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 and and you can only learn two ways: reading or talking, visiting. You know, like getting to learn from so uh, uh, so I, and that's the best way. And over time, you know, you get more pattern recognition. I think we've got better and better people. You know, I, I let go. I've got, you know, I don't, I can't do things like I used to for a whole bunch of different reasons. And so, you know, presumably you get better in life. You do, you know, even management, there's the part which, you know, maybe instinctual, but you learn a lot of tricks to the trade, you know? And like, I think I may have spoken about it before, but how important EQ is more important than IQ. Do people trust you? Would you want your kids to work for that person? That's a very basic question, right? Like, God knows I put people in jobs years ago. Well, I want my kid to work for them. And you earn trust and respect because people know you've got their back. doesn't mean you won't give them a kick in the ass. They deserve it. But you're not going to shoot them if something goes wrong, that you take the blame. You're there to help them succeed, uh, that you recognize their contribution. You recognize your own lack of contribution sometimes, that you're the coach. You know, you're not trying to grandstand. You know, it's not all about you. And, uh, you know, it's again, it's a lesson over and over. Bob Gates talks about it. Jim Mattis talks about CEOs I know talk about it. It's not humbleness, just the humility of the job. The higher up you get, the less you know on average. And it makes a lot of people very insecure. And therefore, you have to rely on more people. And that makes you even more insecure. But, you know, one thing you can't lose is just the, the, the common sense that you just talked about. And, you know, I try to do the same thing when I interviewed people. It's like I always say, would I want my daughter to work for this person? If I couldn't say yes, that person didn't have a chance. And, you know, you do that same kind of thing and, and, a, and a whole lot more. And, you know, when you look to the future for J.P. Morgan Chase, what skills do you think you have to build into the company to make sure that you're prepared for the yeah. future? No, that's and that obviously is the last most important thing I'm going to do is to make sure my successor is the right successor. And of course, it's a board decision; it's not mine. They they meet, as you know, they meet all the senior people. So they get to see them, particularly now, they get to see them a little bit under fire and 
and having to operate. But at the end of the day, you don't have to be an expert in everything, but they have to be true blue. They have to have a work ethic like you wouldn't believe. They've got to be tough because you're going to, you've got to make a lot of tough decisions, some quick, some slow. They're hard decisions. They've got to be open and uh, they've got to earn the respect of other people. Uh, they've got to know how to like coach the team as opposed to necessarily be the star quarterback or the star receiver or something like that. And you want them to have experience across the company. I would, I would make that secondary, but, you know, obviously if you're on the board, you say you feel much more comfortable. They've been on you know, the investment bank and consumer and kind of had deep knowledge about all the businesses, which a lot of our people do. So uh, and they got to have some heart. They, they've got to literally wake up every day and give it their all, change direction when they got something wrong, keep a real team focused and be tough. Jamie, I want to thank you so much for taking this time out to to share your your insights. And, you know, when I think about what is something about you that few people might not know, I always think of your heart. I don't know of anybody that cares more about people, more about our country, and more about doing the right thing than you. And I want to thank you for giving people, obviously through your comments here, just a real sense of who you are, how real you are. David, thank you very much. I always enjoy it. I look forward to talking to you soon. Okay, buddy. Thank you. Don't you just love how real Jamie is? Believe me, he is the real deal. He's not afraid to jump into whatever tough situation he finds himself in. The thing is, he's ready for those tough situations because he's thought about them ahead of time. All right, it's time for me to give you a little coaching. This week, as part of your weekly development plan, here's what I want you to do. I want you to schedule a 20-minute thinking block on your calendar. Use that time to consider a possible tough situation your team needs a playbook for. I want you to really get your wheels turning about the risks facing your organization. Of course, hopefully these problems will never come up, but boy, if you're prepared for them, you're going to have more strength and more confidence no matter what. Now, if you want to learn even more from Jamie about dealing with problems, check out part two of our conversation. We go deeper into his no-nonsense leadership style, including how he tackles the actual day-to-day issues that come up at J.P. Morgan Chase. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders always have a plan to deal with problems. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be.